Good morning. <clears throat> Today, along with much of the worldwide church, we celebrate, as we've already talked about, the day of Epiphany. And we also today enter into the season of Epiphany, which on the church calendar is a pretty short season. It lasts between the seasons of Christmas, which we've just finished, and the season of Lent, which this year begins pretty soon, begins on, of all days, uh, Valentine's Day. So for you romantics, mark your calendar for our Ash Wednesday services on Valentine's Day. So this day of Epiphany and this season of Epiphany are marked by that story we just heard from Matthew chapter 2. We're all familiar with the story somewhat, I would expect. Some of you, when you were younger, may have acted out different parts of this story. The shining of a star, the journey of the wise men, the gifts that they brought to Jesus in Bethlehem. And this story, this epiphany, really is a, a big deal. The reason why it's a big deal was summed up for us in that Ephesians reading that we heard a few minutes ago. In that Ephesians reading, we heard Paul tell of the revelation of the mystery in Christ. And if you were reading along with that, you would have seen Paul say that that mystery had been hidden for ages. It was a mystery hidden for ages, and then it was a mystery revealed in Christ. And he wrote this in Ephesians 3. The mystery which is revealed in Christ is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. This is one of the reasons why Epiphany is such a big deal. It shows us this. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So the Epiphany story declares that to us. Mystery long concealed, now revealed in Christ. It's a big deal. But for today, this year as we come to Epiphany, I'd like to ask a more personal question about Epiphany, which is this. How does this story, this shining of a star, these wise men, the gifts, Herod, how does this story apply to us? Is there any kind of personal application of, of Epiphany? We come to days like this on the church calendar, Epiphany, Pentecost, Christ the King Sunday, seasons of Advent, these, these days, these events that we mark as essential and, and revelatory. Is there, is there personal application of days like this or of seasons like this to our lives? I'd like for us today to try to peel back some of the layers of this story and look more deeply into Epiphany, not so much today on a macro level, but on a micro level. What is the point of Epiphany? What is the point of this story for us? And so that's what I'd like for us to explore as we consider this somewhat familiar story, applying Epiphany, because there is great significance to the story on a macro level, praise God, of God's mission not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles, his drawing people from all nations, fulfilling his promise, revealing the mystery in Christ. But let's zoom in more closely today on 
God's revelation of himself in Christ on epiphany, on a micro level. Because we can have confidence in epiphany, and all of us are going to have confidence in some kind of epiphany in our lives. We're all going to seek confidence in some kind of epiphany. The question is, whose epiphany? Whose epiphany? This past Monday, New Year's Day, my family and I went to Barnes & Noble for a couple of hours, the one over at Mosaic District. And if you've ever been there, you'll know that, that there's a Starbucks cafe right there at the front of it. So we were, I was in line to get some drinks and treats for my kids because I'm such a good dad. Um, <laughs> and I, right where I was standing waiting to get in line was the self-help aisle. So I'm waiting to step up to order, you know, a million dollars worth of pastries and coffee. And I'm in the self-help aisle and I look to my right and right there is this book that just grabs my attention And I took a picture of it so you can make sure I'm not making this up. It's called this, I'm Kind of Awesome. (laughs) A journal to celebrate the glory that is me, myself, and I, because really, what is there for me to lose, not only by believing in myself, but by taking that next little teeny tiny step to spread my plumage and express the full force of my fabulousness? including all the things I'm still improving because I'm so awesome that I actually work on myself and I can sing it loud to haters and lovers alike that there's no downside to acknowledging how truly amazing I am because we'll all be dead soon anyway, so why waste time feeling anything other than deliciously great? We've got a free copy of this book for every one of you here this morning. Right next to that book was its companion, I Totally Got This, a journal to remind myself that I am truly awesome. Everyone say that with me. I am truly awesome. There you go. And how capable and that I'm seriously going to nail it no matter what it is and no matter how much I secretly doubt myself because doubt is just a four-letter word. Okay, five. And I should doubt the doubt like the nonsense it is and chant, come on with me, I can do this. I can do this over and over again, while imagining myself landing that new dream job or doing the thing that scares me most or getting through my run without dying or surviving a blind date because if I believe I can do it or at least convince myself that I can, I've got a darn good chance of actually killing it like the champ that I am right after which I'll start wondering if I'll ever be able to do it again. (laughs) There's one kind of epiphany. I'm kind of awesome, and I totally got this. (laughs) That's one kind of epiphany. And we laugh, and the titles of those books are meant to be humorous and tongue-in-cheek, but it's also kind of tragic, because for far too many people, and far too many Christians, and for far too many of us who just come into a new year, we think that this is the kind of epiphany that has the potential of changing my life. And that kind of epiphany is something along these lines. I'm kind of awesome. I've totally got this. And if I look down deep enough, if I reach down deep enough, if I repeat this mantra to myself enough, then I will come truly alive. I can have an epiphany of the glory that is internal. 
the glory that is me, and then I'm truly alive in 2024. And obviously, that's to miss the point. All that will actually do, looking internally, looking inwardly for an epiphany of my own glory, all that will do is lead to emptiness and more emptiness and eventually madness. We don't need to have an epiphany of the glory, the awesomeness that is me, myself, and I. We need to receive an epiphany of the glory of Jesus. That's the message to the whole world on epiphany. God made it as clear as he possibly could in a dark sky by creating an astronomical phenomenon to say the epiphany that you are to live your lives by is in Bethlehem. Don't put any confidence in any kind of epiphany that you have. Put all your confidence in the epiphany that you have been given. And you've been given the ultimate epiphany in Christ. The word epiphany, in case you're wondering, is taken from the Greek word epiphania. It means manifestation or appearance. Now that I've shown you my extensive Greek knowledge on the first Sunday of the year, it means I've got to wait another year to do that. So (laughs) I've used it up. It's a Greek word, and it appears only a few times in the New Testament. And one of the key appearances of that word, epiphany, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's look at those verses real quick from 2 Timothy 1. These are verses 9 through 10. Paul tells us that this was... God's plan, catch this, from before the beginning of time, wow, that's my addition, to show his grace through Christ Jesus. Now here comes the Greek word, epiphania. Now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus our Savior. God's plan from before the beginning of time to show his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made it all plain to us. How? By the appearing, the epiphany of Christ Jesus. We have been given, every single one of us, the ultimate epiphany not on some great mystery that we have to somehow unravel, but in the plain revelation. That word is in there, plain. (laughs) Plain revelation, plain appearing of Jesus. So we'll come back to those verses, but let's now turn to this story in Matthew 2, this plain revelation. You know that I love the preacher Alistair Begg, And one of the things he always says is the plain things should be the main things. I like that. So let's make the plain things the main things today. Looking at this familiar story, Matthew 2. I want to draw out three very quick points about the point. Matthew chapter 2 begins. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So again, we're going to look at this on a micro level, applying epiphany. So here's one thing we see here is right off the bat that our self-help needs help. Our self-help needs help. It needs additional revelation. Well, why do I say that? Because we see here these, these wise men. There's no reason to think that there were only three of them, by the way. We get that tradition from the fact that there are three gifts, but there could have been 20 wise men. These wise men who were seeking signs saw a sign. That's good. And they assumed, though, that the sign was pointing them to where they assumed it would point. They assumed the sign, which was to point to a king, pointed them to Herod. So they obviously knew the Hebrew scriptures. They knew prophecies from places like Numbers 24, where Balaam prophesied a star and the scepter of 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 a king. They obviously knew the Hebrew prophecies of Micah 5. They quote that prophecy of Micah 5 here in Luke 2, verse 6. So they know the prophecies about a king pointing to Bethlehem, and they get the sign right, they get the city right, but they get the king wrong. And it's natural. They're not sinning. It's just a natural assumption they make that the king would be born to Herod. What they need is further revelation. What we need is further revelation. There was nothing they could do in themselves to figure this out. They needed additional revelation from God. We see this here right off the bat in this story. Their self-help needed help. They needed God's revelation to get to Jesus. So this should be instructive and this should be a comfort to us, to all of us. That's the first time in the Bible that Gentiles are revealed to be seeking God. They get it a little bit wrong, just like you and just like me. So our seeking, our self-help needs help. The epiphanies that we have need to be overruled by the epiphany we receive. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, verse 3, the mystery was made known to me. How? By revelation. We need God's revelation by his word and by his spirit to come to Jesus. We can't figure it out on our own. We can't have enough epiphanies to figure out the way to Jesus. We need a revelation. That's our first point. Our self-help needs help. We need revelation. We need the word. We need the spirit. We need God to lead us to Jesus. We've got to get this because if not, what happens is naturally our self-help leads to self-glorification. It's a natural slide. And that's where our text takes us next to that tragic slide. Our self-glorification leads to self-destruction. This cautionary tale in this story for all of us comes from miserable Herod. And we know he's miserable because of verse 3. We see it. He knows the prophecies too. He hears of their fulfillment. But verse 3 tells us he was troubled. And not only was he troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. So Herod was a narcissist. He had to be the center of everything. Jesus was a threat to him. 
So not only was Herod personally troubled, but he had to make sure that everyone else around him was troubled too. And he goes mad. Look with me at verse seven. This is the slide to self-destruction. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. It's a lie. He's lying. His own epiphanies, Herod's own epiphanies of self-glorification have led him actually to hate the Christ to hate the scriptures and the prophecies, and he's willing to do anything he can to utterly destroy everything around him in order to exalt himself. Herod's heart is to exalt himself. As we read ahead in chapter two, maybe today when you go home, read further ahead in chapter two, find out where Herod's madness leads him. Beware of walking by your own light like Herod for too long living in the reality of your own awesomeness, like Herod, and living according to your own epiphanies. Because the slippery slope of this, the slippery slope of self-exaltation is it leads to a diminishing of Jesus. We may not want to murder him like Herod did, but we do want to take him out. The more we exalt self, the more we glorify self, the more we want to diminish Jesus. I can still remember where I was standing one day when I was on a walk as a young man, just getting started in ministry, when the Lord spoke clearly to me and almost knocked me off my feet. I was, again, just getting started in ministry, and I was becoming more and more internally obsessed with my own promotion, my own fame, and I was getting frustrated, frustrated that I wasn't writing the next great worship hit, frustrated that I wasn't producing the next great worship album, frustrated that I wasn't being seen as the next great worship guru, and I was frustrated with this. I was becoming, at a young age, a little too bent towards wanting myself to be exalted. And I remember where I was standing. It was snowing. I was walking. I was frustrated. Things weren't going the way I wanted them to go for my own promotion. And I perceived the voice of the Lord speaking to me. And he said, Jamie, Lucifer fell because he wanted my glory. Our self-glorification will lead to self-destruction like it did with a miserable Herod. There's a warning here. There's a personal application here, and it kind of hurts, but we've got to see this where it leads. There's a warning here, but now there's also good news here. And we praise God for this, which is this, that our Savior supernaturally draws us to himself. Verse nine, after listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
So let's make the, the plain thing the main thing here. Clearly, plainly, God, by his grace, supernaturally, in this instance, through the shining and moving of a star, led the wise men, who at first had made a wrong assumption about Herod, to instead make a journey to Jesus. Their journey to Jesus was made possible for them by supernatural leading of a star. They were drawn away, catch this, they were drawn away from the epiphany they had had, and instead they were drawn by the light of the epiphany they had received. Verse 9, the star came, quote, to rest over the place where the child was. God pointed them to Jesus. It's like he's taking his finger and saying, it's Jesus, the mystery long concealed, hidden for ages, revealed in Jesus. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Could have been two years, by the way, after his birth. And they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Those gifts were valuable. Those gifts were prophetic. And those gifts show something. They show that these wise men had come to see who really was the awesome one among them. It wasn't them. It wasn't Herod. And it wasn't anyone else in the room. It wasn't anyone else in the house next to Jesus. It was Jesus alone. So what happened was an epiphany of Jesus's glory. It overshadowed their own glory, their own awesomeness, and it was revealed to them by supernatural, astronomical grace. So they're drawn to Jesus, and the first thing they do is lay down their awesomeness. They don't cling to it. They don't celebrate it. The first thing they do when they see Jesus is lay down their awesomeness and the gifts they have and their gold, their frankincense, their myrrh. They lay down their glory, their value. So on a micro level, we can insert ourselves into this story because there is a deep longing in our soul for a guiding light, for illumination, for purpose. Augustine said it this way, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are what? Restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are always trying to connect the dots for satisfaction, for meaning, for joy, for light, for life. And we may not be astrologers, I hope not, but we're all trying to read the stars, so to speak. All of us are. And even if, like the wise men, some of us are good at reading the stars, we've all got hearts that are going to give, they're all going to give primary credence to our own epiphanies. It's just a, a, a result of the fall. There's a sinful bent in all of our hearts to give primary credence to our own epiphanies, our own assumptions. And what happens then is that our ears get tickled by those books in the bookstore, and our own craving for self-glorification, for self-awesomeness, is clawing its way back to the surface. 
since the, we can trace this back to the lie of the serpent in Genesis 3, when he lies to Eve and he lies to Adam. And ever since we believe that lie, what happens is we're all bent to go looking for fulfillment in the wrong fruit. We've got hearts that are prone to wander, and we all keep finding ourselves in Herod's palace instead of at Jesus' feet. Our, our deep longing for meaning will only come in Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 1 again. Paul told us that God's plan from before the beginning of time was to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this, what? Plain to us by the epiphany, appearing of Christ Jesus our Savior. And here's how he finishes this verse. Jesus broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news, through the gospel. So we, we put this book that says, me, myself, and I, we, we put it in, we, we donate it to goodwill. <laughs> I don't know what you do. We throw it away. The book that we put on our shelf says, he, himself, him, his glory. Because our self-help needs serious help. We know that our self-glorification will only lead to self-destruction. And so what happens, praise God, is that our Savior supernaturally draws us to himself. But he's no longer drawing us to himself by the means of a star in the sky. Although he's God, if he ever wants to do that in your life, he can do that in your life. He's powerful enough to tell the stars what to do and how to move. Generally, though, the way God now leads you and leads me to his son is not through supernatural astronomical means, but by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now the star. And every moment of your day, every minute, every hour, the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you is pointing the finger at Jesus and every time that bent towards Herod pops up in your own soul, in your heart, the Holy Spirit shines the light of Christ on you, just like the star on Epiphany, and points you and me to Jesus. Jesus illuminates the way to life and immortality, not through self-help, Paul says, but through the good news. So the warning, to recap, an an epiphany of self-glory, of self-awesomeness will only make us as mad as Herod. It's true. But an epiphany of Jesus' glory, and here's the good news, of Jesus' awesomeness, relying on his grace, will lead us to lay everything at his feet. Our awesomeness, our worth is all found in him. So here's a New Year's resolution. It'll change your life and change your family's life and change this church's life. Bow before Jesus. Give him your awesomeness. Give him your gold and your frankincense and your myrrh. 
He'll more than pay you back in the end. He will. He will. That infant Jesus, he couldn't pay those wise men back in the moment, but he sure did eventually. Don't put any confidence in any kind of epiphany that you just have. Let me just be blunt. Who cares about your epiphany? (laughs) Put all your confidence in the epiphany you have received, and you've received it in Christ. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we pray that you would do a supernatural work in each one of our hearts. You will pour out afresh your Holy Spirit upon us and within us, that your Holy Spirit would more and more permeate and move amongst this church in our lives, that you would always be drawing us to Jesus. And Lord, here we gather at the beginning of a new year. Some of us may feel rested and ready. Others may feel exhausted and done already. So come, Holy Spirit. We need your help. We need your supernatural guidance away from self, away from Herod, and to Christ again and again. And we thank you in advance, too, that we get to feast upon you today, again, at your table, that the light doesn't just dwell far away in the sky somewhere, but he dwells in us. Help us, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.